From the DA Foundation, I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. Over the past few years, we've seen how the COVID-19 pandemic greatly exacerbated the country's existing opioid crisis. The data has shown us significant increases in reported substance use across the board uh, and an upwards of 30% increase in overdose deaths from 2019. The pandemic and its associated lockdowns, quarantines, these have created unique difficulties for people already facing substance use disorders, those in recovery, and those with commonly co-occurring mental illnesses such as depression. Many people have found themselves socially isolated, dealing with incredible financial strain and grieving the illnesses or death of loved ones, and often unable to access the critical medical services that they need. We've long known that such conditions can put people at much greater risk of developing a substance use disorder, in addition to aggravating an existing substance use disorder. One strategy for addressing this expanding crisis of opioid use and overdose deaths is the use of peer support specialists. According to the National Association of Peer Supporters, a peer support specialist is an individual with a life-altering lived experience of psychiatric substance use or other challenges who has made a personal commitment to his or her own recovery and a desire to use what was learned from one's own lived experiences to assist others with similar challenges. Here to discuss how peer support specialists can help prevent prescription opioid misuse are Jesse Davis, president of the National Association of Peer Supporters, and Rich Botner, a PA and director of quality improvement and patient safety with the Colorado Hospital Association. Jesse, Rich, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Now, before we discuss the topics at hand, uh, we want to know a little bit more about how you got into your respective fields and specifically into this relationship with the peer support specialists uh, in opioid and substance use. Rich, I know you and I have had a discussion before um, in one of our prior podcasts, so thank you for joining us again. Um, and I believe, if I remember right, your, your career started in palliative care, correct? Uh, yes, I was doing um, some inpatient palliative care, but I've been a hospital uh, medicine PA for most of my clinical career. And, um, you know, as I often tell the story, to be quite frank, I, I fell into the work of working um, directly with patients with substance use disorder uh, by the, the most beautiful accident. And um, it started uh, back in 2017 when I was doing work as part of our hospital's readmission committee. And to make a long story short, we recognized that people with substance use disorders were at um, extremely high risk of a 30-day hospital readmission, which, as we all know, is one of the holy grails of hospital administration. And so we started looking at, um, is there a way that we can you know, treat this patient population differently, offer services that might be different, and empower staff in a way that we haven't empowered them before to kind of shift our standard of care and look at 
mental health and physical health as um, as being related in the hospital rather than as being different. And so um, I was part of a team that launched called the Buprenorphine team, which was uh, you know, a very targeted intervention for a very specific patient population. It was, you know, a, a very um, specific medication, buprenorphine, for a very specific patient group, which was people with opioid use disorder. But it opened the door to gaining this perspective and this understanding both clinically as well as from a systems perspective about, you know, all the things that uh, we could be doing differently to help this uh, this patient population and to empower our staff. And um, part of that ultimately was working uh, with a local group in Austin that was a peer recovery organization and, uh, and bringing peers into the hospital. Uh, Jesse, tell us a little bit about your background. I'd love to. Um, I had originally had mental health and substance use challenges myself at a very young age, and I originally thought I'd really want to be a substance use counselor to help others in a similar way to how I'd been helped. But during my studies, I learned about peer support, and to be honest, I didn't believe it was a real thing. You know, I'm going to school to be a substance use counselor, and here you're telling me I can do something like peer support. Um, but my colleague convinced me to take the training and I fell, I absolutely fell in love with the way that peer supporters get to connect with people. Well, thank you both. Now, Jesse, tell us a little bit about the role of a, a peer support specialist. How does someone enter this field and what sort of work can they do? Where might people even find themselves working with peer support specialists? Peer supporters are actually across the country and even working globally. In each community, the requirements to become a peer supporter or a peer support specialist may vary slightly along with the name that we're called. You might hear us called recovery coaches, peer recovery specialists, peer support specialists, peer workers, and more. You'll find, though, that commonly a person with life experience would need to take the state or community-approved training and go through the certification requirements, like signing to abide by an ethical code. You could find us working in mental health or substance use facilities, emergency rooms, jails, courts, doctor's offices, in crisis teams in the community, or even online. Now, in terms of substance use disorders, what makes a peer support specialist different from an addictions counselor? Yeah, that's a, a, a great question. And, you know, my early understanding of this relied heavily on the work of Honora Englander from OHSU, who is a amazing addiction medicine and internal medicine physician who's addiction medicine boarded and has done um, a, a tremendous amount of work in building the research base and the literature for how to effectively integrate peer recovery specialists in the acute care setting. Um, and I think, you know, th this question is an important one because peers are, are not addiction counselors. Peers are not clinicians. Um, peers bring just a very different um, and extremely important perspective to the delivery of patient care that we don't get anywhere else. And that is the experience um, of, of that person's lived experience. And so we often uh, you know, kind of use those terms interchangeably in the field that a, a peer support specialist is also an individual with lived experience. And they are, their lived experience is that of somebody who um, uh, has, you know, been hospitalized before um, as the result of substance use disorder. They may or may not be in, in long-term recovery, but 
their their goal, their mission is to is to and only to support the patient where where they're at. And um, you know, Anora in one of her earlier papers about this describes peer recovery specialists as culture brokers, which I think is just such a a really incredible way to kind of sum up the importance of their work in the sense that um, you know a patient with a history of substance use disorder and you know that patient population. Um, has a you know sort of deep-seated, long history of mistrust with the healthcare system because, quite frankly, the healthcare system hasn't always treated those those folks the way that um, we treat other patient populations. And so there is a long history of mistrust. Um, and so they come into the hospital during this you know very scary time for them of, of needing acute medical care, um, and oftentimes you know, some of these patients are not uh, necessarily engaged in outpatient primary care. So so interacting with the healthcare system is not something that they choose to do lightly, right? They're, there's a long history of, of fear and mistrust there. And so when they come into the hospital, there's, you know, as we all know, hospitals are, are busy environments. There's a lot going on. Patients are sick. Um, you know, clinicians are, are you know, often, um, you know, rushing around because there's just just a high level of acuity that we often see in the hospital setting. And so the, the beauty that peer recovery specialists bring to the mix is that they help to translate all of that for uh, the patients who are, um, who are, you know, acutely ill in the hospital. So they're, they're trying to, to bring together these two very different worlds that ultimately allow the hospitalized patients to, to receive the care that they need. Without that, um, you you have individuals, you have clinicians, many of whom you know were like me six seven years ago, have no formal training or experience um, working with people with substance use disorder other than what we sort of learned on our own through time, and that is part of where some of these communication challenges end up. So peers play a really, a really important role in helping patients feel comfortable, helping to meet patients where they're at, and to help make patients, um, uh, you know, sort of understand what's happening around them. Again, it's not their job to be clinicians. It's not their job to explain medical procedures, um, but it is their job to to really help sort of fill in that gap that that there is no one else who does that uh, better than than peers. Well, so when a peer support specialist is working with someone who has experienced challenges with substances, uh, we are going to be a little different in practice. Like you kind of mentioned, a counselor or therapist is trained to use specific therapy techniques, whereas peer supporters, we don't do therapy, we don't diagnose. Uh, we meet the person where they are at, we share our experience, and we help them to reach their goals, even if that's harm reduction or just getting off of probation. Thank you. I appreciate that explanation. That was very good. And it feels like the role very much can be as a provider of trust, right? The, the peer allows trust to be built and to bridge that gap often for different providers. Now, uh, what other challenges would you say there are that peer support specialists can address, um, challenges in standard treatment? Yeah, so we talked about trust, and, and obviously I think that that is a major one. Um, and it, I think it's really just this idea of building multidisciplinary and interprofessional teams. And, and we know today that the absolute best possible health outcomes, whether it's substance use disorder or heart failure or COPD, no matter what that 
no matter what that um, diagnosis is for a patient who's in the acute care setting, we know that the best possible health outcomes are achieved by empowering multidisciplinary and interprofessional teams. And addiction is no different. And one of those vital roles on that team is a peer recovery specialist. Now, there are others, right? Um, you mentioned addiction counselors earlier. Um, obviously, there's prescribers, whether it's a physician or a PA or a nurse practitioner. There's pharmacists involved. There's social workers involved. Um, there's case managers involved. But all of these people have a critical role to play. And again, the peer is such an integral part of that team. I, I often say, and you know, we we talk about different sorts of reimbursement models and funding streams for addiction care. And this is always a big uh, a big discussion in the healthcare community. And and my take on that is that the single best value for our our addiction care dollars is peers because they bring so much uniqueness to the care delivery system that we just don't get from anyone else on the team. Now, of course, there are um, healthcare professionals who who may be in recovery. They, They may have their own form of lived experience, but we have to understand that those individuals, their primary goal is the clinical care of that patient. That's how our healthcare system is designed, and, and, and rightfully so, right? When you're in the hospital, you want the best possible clinical outcome. The job of the peer is not about clinical outcomes. The job of the peer is supporting the patient where they're at from a, from a substance use disorder perspective. And while we all strive to do that in the hospital setting, um, you know, as clinicians, we obviously have other things that we need to be doing to support that patient clinically versus the peer who is there, literally peer support. It's just to support the patient and to um, help that patient you know, find recovery, whatever that means for for the patient, whether it's a a harm reduction approach, whether it's a treatment approach, um, really just supporting that patient where they're at while they're in the hospital. So I find that standard treatment models tend to have a hierarchical structure, often leaving the person seeking services as the person being told what to do and with less say in their plan than others on the treatment team. Peers will 100% center, the person being served as the expert of their own experiences, their own wants, and their own needs, even and especially when substance use is involved. Well, I think that lived experience is so important. I think that allows our patients to connect with someone in a very real way that traditionally we may not be able to offer them. So I, I think that's very important. Now, we all know that in modern medicine, we are very evidence based. Um, what does the science say about using peer support specialists? The you know utilization and the integration of peer recovery specialists within the addiction care um, you know system has been around for a very very long time. But I would argue, and the literature would argue, that it hasn't been around quite in its current form. Meaning that um, for for much of its history, early on, peers were used in the um, outpatient treatment of uh, alcohol use disorder, the idea of bringing, you know, peer recovery specialists into the hospital setting, into the acute care setting, into the emergency department um, as part of these interprofessional care teams to address substance use disorder, that's a, that is a newer approach. Now, it has been around in some health systems for a long time, but in terms of widespread growth and adoption, um, that is certainly a newer phenomenon that we're seeing. And again, Nora Englander's work um, at OHSU, I think, is, is one of, uh, among, among many really good examples of how this work can be done. So in terms of the science, 
the, the science around um, using peers in general, and actually even if you take a step back from addiction care and you think about um, burn units, you have used peers for a very long time. There, there are many examples where we've used um, peer groups and peer supporters um, as a way to, to support patients. So the idea of peerness has been around for a very, very long time. Um, peers in substance use disorder, again, the, the evidence is very strong and for certain diagnoses like alcohol use disorder and in the outpatient setting. And based on the evidence that we have so far over the last you know, five to 10 years about the use of peers in the emergency department setting and peers in the inpatient acute care setting, um, the evidence is very, very strong. Now, um, I would encourage us to think really broadly when we say you know, what does the science say about this? Because there are some really good quantitative papers talking about ROI and readmissions and, you know, all of those sorts of things, which I think are really important. Um, but when it comes to addiction care, we often talk a lot about numbers and we don't talk enough, in my opinion, about qualitative research. And, and you know, one of the best examples of this, honestly, is when we talk about mortality. Um, and of course, now that that COVID has become, you know, more endemic and we're starting to focus on the drug epidemic in our country again a little bit more. You know, back when I started doing this work, I used to say that this is the public health crisis of our time. And that, that was, of course, before COVID. Um, but the the mortality related to drug overdoses in this country have, have only gotten worse. We, we were making a little bit of progress before COVID. Um, and now it's actually worse than it was before COVID. So we have a huge problem on our hands. And when we talk about mortality, you know, we, we talk about 100 plus thousand overdose deaths as just numbers. And, and, it, and it pains me every time because what we lose sight of is that these are 100,000 plus individual lives, people, you know, children, parents, loved ones, best friends, et cetera. And so there's a story to be told about each one of those lives. And I, and I bring that up here because when it comes to peer specialists, there are some really wonderful qualitative papers that have come out talking about the experience from the peers' perspective, from the hospital administrator's perspective, from the clinician's perspective. Um, and I think those are really important to think about as well as what's the, what has been the, the, the experience and the stories of different hospitals and different institutions around the country that have invested in and started integrating peers. Um, and what you'll find is that for the most part, they're, they're overwhelmingly positive. And it's because the, the use of peers, the integration of peers is just so important. And again, I know I've said this several times already, but they just bring something to the table that no other discipline does um, currently in the hospital setting. Rich, you have a great deal of experience working alongside peers in many specialties, and specifically in the opioid use disorder recovery field. Tell us a little bit more about your personal experience and what that team dynamic looks like. Sure. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we started doing um, this work at the hospital I was working at back in 2017, where we built interprofessional teams around opioid use disorder and, and really being intentional about screening and diagnosis and, and initiating treatment for patients who were interested. And about a year or so into doing this, we, we sort of took a step back and we said, okay, what, what's missing? And we had built some really wonderful uh, coalitions with community organizations, and, and several of them had said, uh, what you're missing are peer recovery specialists. Now, as I mentioned earlier, 
I was brand new to this field when I started doing this. I did not, like like most of my PA and advanced practice nurse and physician colleagues did not receive, you know, in-depth training around um, addiction care when I was in school. And so I was really learning as I was going. And so when I heard that we were missing peer recovery specialists, my, my first question was, well, what's a peer recovery specialist, right? Um, there was an organization in Austin that really, they, they, they were one of, if not the largest peer recovery organization in the entire state of Texas. And so um, I immediately picked up the phone and called their executive director and said, I, I'd love to learn more about the work that you all do. And um, myself and a few others went down to um, to their uh, clinic and, and spent some time with, with peer recovery specialists. And then we, we knew right away that, in fact, this was something that we were absolutely missing. And so we, we leaned on some other uh, folks who were doing this work, um, not in Texas, but but outside of the state. Um, there's some really good examples I mentioned earlier in Oregon. There's some great examples in California. There's some great examples in uh, South Carolina and Massachusetts and Connecticut. So there are um, there were other hospitals that were doing this. And so we connected with them and sort of started to learn about, you know, how do you actually go about doing this other than just saying, yeah, we want to bring peers into the hospital. Um, and so eventually we were able to do that. We had executive buy-in to, to pilot it. Um, we had a little bit of funding, um, although initially the uh, peer recovery organization had their own SAMHSA funding. And so they were actually able to um, to provide us with a little bit of peer recovery specialist time as a pilot out of their own funding. So it actually didn't cost the hospital system any money at all. Um, and then we connected that peer with one of our um, hospital medicine teams. And as we were screening patients for you know, primarily we were looking at opioid use disorder at the time, but we said, hey, if, if there's another substance use disorder and, and, and there's time available, then of course we should we should also use um, our peers' time for that. And uh, our peers' name um, was Slade, and, and Slade was amazing, absolutely amazing. Every time he would go meet with a patient, uh, the clinical team would, would inevitably hear later from the patient about how wonderful it was to connect with Slade. And what was really beautiful um, was that as, as anyone who, who, who tries to do this work in the hospital knows that the work we do in the hospital is, is only as strong as our outpatient network, right? So if we're, if we're helping patients with substance use disorder in the hospital uh, with resources and you know, potentially initiating treatment and, and harm reduction strategies, if there's no one in the community to continue to engage with them when they leave the hospital, um, it's, you know, I, I'm not going to say that the work was for not, because that's not true, but, but it's certainly more impactful if you have organizations in the community to do warm handoffs with. Um, and, and Slade knew all those organizations, you know, sometimes better than our own social workers did. Uh, and, um, you know, he would give his phone number out to patients and would actually follow them in the outpatient community. That was a big part of his role was sort of, you know, helping patients with that transition from the hospital to the community. And he would follow folks once they discharged from the hospital. And, you know, occasionally they'd have to, um, you know, get linked up with a different peer or, or whatever it might be. But the point was um, that from a substance use disorder perspective, the patients knew Slade. Slade knew the patient. Um, Slade did, did not have, you know, access to the medical record. He wasn't documenting in the chart. Um, and, and I will tell you one of our lessons learned that early on, we actually had Slade as part of our um, secure text messaging group. So, you know, Slade had to go through PHI training and, and had to have, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say a formal credentialing process, but he did have to go through a normal vetting process with the hospital. So he was able to see PHI, 
Um, and originally we had him in the same secure text messaging group where we would talk about the patient's clinical care. And what we realized early on was that that was actually a mistake because it was it was stripping um, Slade of some of the peerness that that they bring to the table, right? Intentionally, they don't know the clinical picture. They don't need to know the clinical picture. Um, and so it was really wonderful to have Slade as part of the team um, as an outsider at the same time that he was also an insider, if that makes sense. So he really, again, that, that culture broker term um, really resonates and is exactly what Slade was able to do for us in the hospital. And Jesse, you yourself have served as a peer support specialist. Tell us a little bit about your experiences. Working directly with people as a peer support specialist is one of the favorite things I've ever done. I get to sit down and help people reach a quality of life that they choose to reach for. I don't tell them what to do. I don't impose my own beliefs on them. We work to figure out what they want and how to get there. And getting to see that light turn on in somebody's eyes when they get hope again is so rewarding. And it's something that I absolutely love being able to be a part of. That's great. I think that personal connection is so important. That's something I think you probably enjoyed very much in your work. Um, So I, I admire that very much. Now, with peer support specialists, there are, I imagine, multiple misconceptions about how they're utilized and what their, what their value is. Um, what are some of the, these misconceptions, and, and how can we set the record straight? I would argue that the, the single biggest misconception is that peers represent the clinical team. And, and I actually think this is a, an important misconception to raise both with hospitals, with with clinical teams, as well as with administrators, but also with patients, right? Um, because what you don't want is to have the patients perceive that um, that you have sort of like this inside agent perspective, right? The, the peers truly are independent. And I use this term um, peerness, um, it, which is a term from the recovery community, from the peer community, because it, 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 it really deserves its own word, its own definition, right? They, they are their own entity. They have their own agency, if you will, um, within the clinical care environment. So, you know, I kind of said this earlier um, intentionally, but I think it's important to kind of bring it back around now that that misconception that peers are part of the clinical team, that they represent the clinical team, um, that they are there, for example, to help um, encourage patients to start a uh, medication for opioid use disorder, that they're there to, you know, deliver messages on behalf of the clinical team. Um, th- all of that is further from from the truth. Um, you know, it, it, that, that should not be the case, and that's not how these programs should be, um, should be built and, and designed, which is why I said earlier that when we first started doing this, and of course, you, you learn by doing, um, that was one of the first mistakes we recognized that we were making was that we were bringing our peer too close to the clinical work. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that is the, the single biggest misconception. Um, peers need to maintain their independence. Obviously, there needs to be um, boundaries, right? There needs to be, you know, very explicit conversations about, you know, what peers do and do not do in the hospital setting for a variety of reasons. But at the end of the day, 
um, peers are their own their own their own um, individuals. They are they have their own agency, and they do not represent the clinical team. They work with the clinical team, but not um, as as an integral you know part of the clinical team representing um, the medical institution. I find that a lot of times when peers are first introduced to a new team or a new organization, people aren't necessarily taught about what the peer role is. Or if they are, there's still a lot of questions of how this new role is supposed to integrate in a team, especially when we're non-clinical and we aren't going to diagnose or treat people. And so, again, there's a lot of confusion on a treatment team, including someone that's not there to, quote, treat somebody. Um, And that a lot of time ends up with us being asked to do things that would be better suited for an administrative assistant. Um, And a lot of times people will ask us to do assessments. We're not many clinicians. We're also not there to replace anybody. There's a, a big fear sometimes not all of the times, but there is a big fear that when bringing in peer supporters or peer support specialists, other positions may not be as needed anymore. And I can tell you, we do not want anybody to be replaced. We want to work alongside with the current treatment team and make sure that we're centering the person's goals in our work as a team rather than having anybody being replaced or um, not deemed as part of the team anymore. Thank you. That explanation makes a lot of sense. Now, we know there are certain populations that are at increased risk for opioid use disorders or who experience risks that are very unique to their population. The PA Foundation has been working on a program about preventing prescription opioid misuse in some of these populations, including the LGBTQ population, young surgical patients, patients in palliative or hospice care, and patients who are already in recover from opioid use disorders. How might the peer support specialists play a role in addressing prescription opioid misuse in these populations or others? It's a great question. Um, And, you know, as you were asking it, where my mind was going was really thinking about this through a lens of of health equity. And, And I know not all of the groups you mentioned necessarily fit that, um, that lens, but, but, this is probably a really important um, time in this discussion to to talk about the relevance of, of health equity. Um, and you know, we know that there are particular groups who, as you mentioned, are are at higher risk for um, overdose death. Um, there are groups who are at higher risk for um, even you know sort of um, initial use, if you will. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but one of those reasons is the system of care that we've built. And, and in the um, SUD community, there is a lot to be said about social determinants of health and um, structural racism and how we have stood up these systems of care. Um, do you know that today... Uh, a white person is 35 times more likely to find a buprenorphine provider in their community than a black person um, in their community. And so these are major, major, major disparities. And they go, you know, they go back 50 plus years with the war on drugs. Um, but we also know, you know, you had mentioned um, LGBTQ plus um, communities. There, there are many communities who uh, just do not have the same access to addiction care as others. And the, the nice part about peers is that 
the peers again can serve as that bridge. Um, and so our, our first peer that we brought into the hospital in full transparency was a white, a middle-aged white male. And we recognized um, pretty quickly that, you know, while he was and is a wonderful peer, a very skilled peer, that there were certain patients that, um, that I think had a tough time or a tougher time uh, relating to him. I, I was, you know, in Austin, we have a large um, patient population who speaks a language other than English, um, commonly Spanish. And, you know, Slade didn't speak Spanish. Uh, we had patients who um, were, um, you know, black who probably felt more comfortable um, having an individual whose lived experience was that of a black person's lived experience. And we know that the lived experience of a white patient versus a black patient as it relates to addiction care and the intersections with criminal justice are often very different. So I think it's just, it's so important um, as we as we are having this time of reckoning in healthcare, of understanding health equity, um, that that we don't forget about the importance of considering health equity within addiction care, because it is a huge part of solving the addiction crisis in our country and recognizing that there is no one size fits all. We know, and we often talk about how not every patient necessarily um, wants treatment, and so you know for those patients we talk about harm reduction and. That, that is becoming a more and more acceptable conversation as it should be. Um, we have to think about that when it comes to health equity too, that not every solution, not every, um, not every individual is going to fit every other individual. And we have to be really intentional about developing new systems of care through a lens of health equity. Well, I think that peer supporters have the unique ability to connect with people outside of the immediate situation that they're introduced in. So if somebody is coming in and they to meet with a peer supporter and they've been referred from having surgery as a young person, or they've been referred in hospice care or any of the other situations that you mentioned, we can talk to them about that, but we can also talk to them about anything else that might be on their mind. If somebody's coming in and saying, hey, I was referred to you by my surgical team, but I don't want to talk about that. My boyfriend just broke up with me and I'm having a really hard time. Then we're able to just dive right into that and support them through whatever's going going on there. And it's not that we're necessarily going to be focusing on opioid use. We are going to be focusing on connecting with this person and making sure that they are as supported as they possibly can be. And within the limitations of what they want as their supports as well. I think you both have laid out fairly clearly the many benefits of having a peer support specialist join your team. Now let's talk a little bit about why we don't see more peer support specialists. What are some of the challenges uh, in including peers as part of your healthcare team? As I mentioned before, a lot of times Teams aren't fully taught about the role of peers before they get brought in, whether it's because it's part of a grant program or someone heard about peer supporters and how awesome uh, they can be for the people we serve and thought, oh, let's bring them into the team, but then didn't do enough training. A lot of times that makes the working relationship suffer and therefore the support for the people we meet with suffers as well. Um, And so if people have heard of peer support, sometimes they hear these stories of when peers haven't been introduced to a team well, and that scares people. I can also share 
alluding to what I just mentioned, that a lot of times people just don't know peer supporters exist. Peer supporters have been around for decades in the mental health and substance use fields and has grown out of traditional 12-step programs as well as other mutual aid groups and the consumer survivor ex-patient movement. But yet people aren't taught about peer support when they are going through school. They're not taught that uh, peer support as a profession exists. Most of the time when people hear peer support put together, they think of the plain language version of those words where it's, you know, a friend helping a friend. So we really just need to make sure that people learn that peer supporters exist and we're here, but also make sure that the teens are educated when they're going to be bringing a peer supporter into the team. I have some some concrete thoughts around this. Um, the first, as is, you know, often the case when we think about um, innovative models of addiction care is reimbursement. And, and this is really a problem across the country. This is not unique to any one, you know, health system or state or anything like that. This really is a universal challenge where, um, you know, the use of peers in the inpatient setting is such a, a new and kind of novel thing that, um, that how we appropriately reimburse for that service is something that we haven't truly figured out yet. And if you look at many of the programs that have been stood up around the country, I would guess that the majority of them are grant funded. So we're sort of in that proof of concept kind of pilot mode still. And to truly make this um, sustainable and to a, a extend its growth around the country, uh, we're going to have to figure out a, a meaningful reimbursement model. So that's number one. Um, number two is, is, and I am not a expert on, you know, peer systems in and of themselves, but, um, and I'm sure Jesse has some really good thoughts on this, but, you know, there is for every X number of peer specialists, you need to have a peer supervisor. And there's always this sort of discussion around in the hospital setting, how many peers should a one supervisor have? And is that number different from what may be in the outpatient setting? And there's a lot of variables that go into that. But as you can imagine, um, if you have a smaller number of peers to a supervisor, if that ratio is tighter, um, then that affects the reimbursement model that we talked about in the, in the first piece of this. So, um, you know, in my experience, especially if you have a newer peer, there is a sort of ramp-up period. And over time, that you know, that peer may, may be able to have some more autonomy without such close supervision. So I think we need to figure that out a little bit more. Um, and then finally is around, and I'll kind of put these into both, both of these into kind of, I'll say regulatory. Um, and I don't mean that, and you know, people, you hear regulatory, people get excited. Um, all I mean is that we, we don't have a good sense of um, how many peers uh, or how many states require some sort of certification process, how many states require licensure process um, at the hospital level, what's the process like for peers coming into the building, what's the credentialing process like. So there's a lot of these, you know, quote unquote regulatory pieces that, you know, we just quite haven't um, uh, figured out yet. And I think we will with time. But when you're thinking about, you know, how do we really amplify this and grow this in a, in a more expedient way, I think those are the challenges that we have to figure out. What's the reimbursement model? What's, this, what's, what's an effective supervision model in a hospital setting, recognizing that that's probably different from an outpatient setting? And then how do we figure out this idea of you know, certification versus licensure and, and credentialing in the hospital setting as well? Thank you both. Now, you 
both have quite a bit of experience uh, with this in your day-to-day and with working in this realm. For PAs and other healthcare providers, what is the best way to advocate for inclusion of peer specialists in our practice settings? One way to kind of um, get the wheels spinning for people in the organization that this is important is to maybe just host a panel. Um, Now, not all people with lived experience are necessarily, quote unquote, peer recovery specialists, but we have have done many um, lived experience panels in my old work and in my current work, and they're very, very effective at really bringing that personal story in. And, you know, you do sort of a brown bag lunch, you invite people with lived experience, um, you know, for folks who work in a clinic setting. Uh, patients of that clinic or for folks in the hospital setting, people who have been hospitalized in that hospital at at some point in the past. Um, It's a really effective uh, learning tool. I will just say real quickly that when I started doing this work, you know, a few years ago, um, there was this, um, you know, uh, kind of a weird uh, dynamic where you would invite people with lived experience to tell their story and not compensate them for their time. And, and this really was sort of the national trend that you would invite people in and you would say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're giving people a platform to share their story and that's, you know, that's the payment. Um, and we know now that that's really an appropriate. So I just want to flag that if you do, if you do have people with lived experience coming into an organization, you should absolutely um, compensate them for their time. So just a quick side note there. But um, so I think, you know, lived experience panels are a really good way just to kind of start that conversation um, but then get to know the peer recovery organizations that that serve your community. And there are always organizations that serve communities, no matter where you are, even if you're in a rural area. Now, the organization that serves that rural area, they may not have any peers that regularly go to that area, that, as is often the case, unfortunately. Um, but there are always peer organizations that will at least talk with you about the importance of peers and help to develop those you know, systems of care and develop those relationships. I, I mentioned Slade earlier, who was um, the peer that I worked with when I was in Austin. And, and if Slade is out there and listening, um, you know, he, he is just so amazing and gifted in the work that he does. And I know that he's a huge um, advocate for um, integrating peers into the healthcare community. So you're welcome to reach out to me and I will connect you with Slade. And I'm sure that he would uh, love to chat with you as well. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's about relationships. It's about um, you know, for some folks who, who may not be engaged, you know, intimately in this work every single day, like I was, um, it, it's to push yourself a little bit outside that comfort zone and to say, you know, these people with lived experience, these peer recovery specialists that maybe I haven't really, you know, chatted with before, um, that they actually have something to offer my patients and to offer me as a clinician. They, they offer a perspective and they give me tools on my tool belt that I wouldn't otherwise have had I not reached out in the first place. So I think, you know, really, um, I know it sounds cliche, but, but you know, picking up the phone and making that call and, and sort of taking that first step to getting to know the peers in your community, is, it really is the first step. Thank you, Rich. Now, Jesse, Rich, can you share with us a little bit of your success stories? Anything that particularly has stood out um, in your work with peer support specialists in supporting a patient who has used substances? Well, first, I want to say any success stories that I could share wouldn't necessarily be my success or success as a peer supporter. It's with the success of the people that we're working with. And one person in particular sticks out to me. I was working with them in an outpatient doctor's office setting, and they had quite a few challenges, including challenges with substances. And they had 
a really hard time just doing everyday normal living functions. And while we were meeting, we didn't necessarily focus on the substances as the main thing that we were talking about every single session. I talked with them about what their goals are, what would make life better. If you could snap your fingers, and this is a cool thing for anybody listening, if you could snap your fingers and life would be wonderful, exactly how you want it to be, what would be included in that vision? What would be included in that perfect situation? And so we worked on figuring out what that even was for this person. And from there, we were able to realize that they wanted to be an author. They wanted to be a published author. And they also wanted to be a paid actor. And so while, yes, they were there referred through um, other professionals for mental health and substance use challenges, we were able to get them to a place uh, where their quality of life was a lot better. And on top of that, they did end up becoming a published author, self-published, but they became a published author by the time we ended up working to, or we ended our working together. And they even ended up becoming a paid actor at a dinner theater and getting to see them really grab that, that hope again and be able to see that life can be better than where they had been was so amazing to be able to be a part of. I, I can't think of one single story because when I tried to, they all, they all sort of flood um, my mind and, and collide in this sort of, you know, beautiful way. Um, I, you know, th- there's so many stories of um, where our peers met with patients in the emergency room, met with patients in the acute care floors, um, prevented patients from self-discharging from the hospital because their their needs weren't being addressed or because they were fearful of being mistreated. Um, and when patients, you know, did leave the hospital, when they were discharged, uh, when their care was completed, you know, being that link to community resources, we, we had a um, community paramedic program that would initiate treatment for um, opioid use disorder in the community and distribute naloxone and, and um, would love to come back some time and talk about the the importance of, um, of utilizing the EMS system to uh, deliver care for, for people with substance use disorder. But, um, but our peers were connected with these community paramedics um, as well as with clinics in the community. So, you know, again, we, we often talk, you know, we, we talk about this for, you know, diabetes and we talk about this for COPD and, and all of these sort of core measure um, diagnoses that we pay close attention to. And, and we pay close attention to those because we've decided as a society, we've decided as a healthcare community that, that those are important. And I would encourage us to recognize and appreciate that today more than ever, um, substance use disorder and addiction is equally as important to those other things like heart failure and diabetes and COPD. Um, and if we started thinking about it that way, then we really would start developing these robust systems of care and peers um, are an absolutely important part of that. And, um, and you know, I, I have seen firsthand time and time again, how doing this work, you know, obviously it, it helps the patient and I hope that listeners are taking that away. Um, but it also helps the healthcare providers, you know, now more than ever, we're, we're talking about burnout. Um, and part of that burnout and that, you know, frustration that lingers for healthcare providers today is frustration of not being able to help patients. You know, we, we, we saw that during COVID. Um, and, you know, that same frustration is experienced 
by having people with addiction in the hospital that we can't do anything about. But we actually can do things. We, we can offer medication. We can offer peers. We can offer resources. Um, and so peers are, are part of the answer here, without a doubt, and uh, would, all, would, would, would welcome um, anybody who's listening to this to reach out at any time, and, and I'm happy to chat more about it. Now, to close, I'd like to thank our guests, Jesse Davis and Rich Botner, for speaking with me today about this timely topic that we see in all aspects of medicine. This episode of Vital Minds is supported by the Amerisource Bergen Foundation's Opioid Resource Grant Program and is one element of a larger set of resources you can find on the PA Foundation website. Visit pa-foundation.org forward slash special hyphen patient hyphen populations to see the full suite of resources. Again, I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds.